Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll get a complete update on prostate cancer from screening to diagnosis to treatment and survival with a urologist who specializes in cancer. Prostate cancer is something that is known to be a heterogeneous disease or a very mixed disease where not each patient is the same. It's important that you find a doctor who understands this concept and doesn't just lump every patient into the same group. Then, we'll explore what's important to know about the thyroid gland, its common disorders, and why the rates of thyroid cancer have been rising. The most common cause of an underactive thyroid Hashimoto's thyroiditis uh, is present both in children and adults. And also the most common cause of hyperthyroidism called Graves' disease also affects children and adults. All that and a visit from our healing muse coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, medicine, and science with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, a pediatric endocrinologist explains what we need to know about the thyroid gland and how to tell when something is wrong. But first, we get an update on prostate cancer, including the latest on screening, diagnosis, and treatment from the Chief of Urology at Upstate University Hospital. About one man in seven will be diagnosed with prostate cancer during his lifetime. It's a cancer that develops mainly in older men and with an average age at diagnosis of 66. Here to give us an update on this disease and its treatment options is Dr. Gennady Bretzlovsky, Professor and Chair of the Department of Urology at Upstate. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Amber. Well, with so many genetic advances in medicine, are we at a point yet where we can tell which boys will grow up to develop prostate cancer? We're certainly at a much better place in terms of prognosticating or telling those young men, or as you call them, boys, to tell them who will develop prostate cancer. We use something known as odds ratio or possibility of increased risk for development of prostate cancer. We have a very active genetic program here at Upstate one of the very few in the state, and we have certain genes that we know certainly predispose uh, men to develop prostate cancer. Uh, considering many factors, including family history, uh, ethnicity, as well as the, some of the genetic panels that we can run, uh, we certainly can at least tell patients who are at increased risk. Nobody has a crystal ball yet, to tell men who will absolutely develop prostate cancer, but we can certainly identify those populations at a higher risk. And using our genetic profiles, we can be a uh, we can give much more precise prognostication or ability to be suspicious of potential for development of the disease. So, if someone, if a man has a family history of a father who had prostate cancer or a mother who had breast cancer or any kind of cancer, does that put the person at a higher risk? Interestingly, you mentioned breast cancer. It shows that you're quite ready for this interview. Uh, not any cancer has been associated with a development of prostate cancer in young men uh, or men in general. Nevertheless, knowledge about association of breast cancer history and a history of prostate cancer is crucial. In fact, we have recently published a manuscript identifying that uh, men with a history of breast cancer 
and uh, those men that had mutations or changes in the gene that is known as BRCA2, B-R-C-A-2, gene responsible for development of breast cancer as well as ovarian cancer, those men are not only at a risk that is higher than an average man to develop prostate cancer, those men are also at a risk of developing an aggressive form of a prostate cancer. So uh, getting a family history with a specific focus on family history, not only now for prostate cancer, but breast cancer, ovarian cancer in the family, is becoming our standard part of evaluation of any patient coming into our office and referral to our genetic counselors because some men may not have any family history of prostate cancer as their father may have died from uh, uh, unknown causes uh, or from other causes at, uh, like a heart attack. Nevertheless, they may have a mother and a sister and an aunt with a family history of breast cancer all are positive for this genetic mutation. And those men are certainly at a much higher risk for development of prostate cancer. And this is where our next level of education comes in, where men are asked about seemingly known uh, gene for women, but certainly very much underappreciated uh, gene for development of prostate cancer. Well, I think you're right. I think women, if women has a, the breast cancer gene, she would naturally want to make sure that her daughter's you know, were, were tested or checked, but she might not think about sons. But you're saying that they, we need to at this point. Absolutely. And on top of breast cancer genes, there are several other genes that have been associated with development of prostate cancer. Part of our genetic panel that we order here at Upstate uh, also check for presence of mutations of these genes, any family history of prostate cancer, but again, breast cancer history may be a risk and actually is a risk for development of prostate cancer, especially if these men are found to have mutations. In fact, recently I may have seen several patients coming in now with diagnosis of having a mutation in what is known as a, a breast cancer gene or BRCA2, the one that I mentioned earlier, and those men will be undergoing a much more vigilant surveillance strategy just to make sure that we catch things early and uh, if they do have prostate cancer, maybe those are cancers that we need to be much more aggressive with in terms of treatment, as well as potentially in cases of more advanced cancers. We're now learning that there are classes of drugs for which uh, 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 these cancers will respond differently. In fact, it may be a big opportunity once we identify these men that have a very aggressive prostate cancer or sometimes even metastatic prostate cancer, the one that has spread to other organs, these men may actually benefit from this genetic testing as well, not only to see whether or not they will develop cancer because they may already have an aggressive cancer, but now to guide therapy. What treatment would What work. treatment, mm -hmm. because it may, it may be quite different than we have a class of drugs now available on the market, such as PARP2 inhibitors, that will work uh, much more effectively in those men that have this genetic defect. Neat. Well, in terms of reducing risk, um, I've seen some studies that, that looked at red meat diets, sexually transmitted diseases, visectomy, a bunch of other things kind of speculative about whether there's an impact or not on reducing risk or not. Is there anything concrete that men can do to reduce their risk? So as of today, there is no well-designed or well-done prospective trial that has shown that one sort of activity 
procedure, diet, or anything would reduce the risk. And in fact, I would uh, like to caution many men who feel that uh, reading some of the pop literature or known now as fake news would be uh, uh, benefiting uh, from, uh, uh, from uh, prostate cancer reduction by engaging in one sort of activity or exercise. An example, as you have mentioned, red meat, while it certainly makes excellent biologic plausibility that perhaps some of the badnesses contained within the red meat are bad not only for prostate and heart, we really don't have a perfect study. We have studies that show some what is known as association that those men that appear to have had red meat may have had a worse disease. But as of right now, we really just tell men to use it in moderation or cut it just because it's just bad for you from many other standpoints. Uh, vasectomy used to be known used to be known uh, to be a risk factor potentially for development of prostate cancer because of several studies that have been published early as in the 90s and early 2000s and yet further analysis of this have not proven to be the case some men have been uh, taking some over the counter antioxidants feeling that uh, this may help and in fact i would like to caution men on reading some of these inappropriate literature uh, that sometimes these antioxidants uh, may actually be bad for you. And an example of it comes from a recently completed trial known as SELECT trial, SELECT, S-E-L-E-C-T, which is a selenium and vitamin E. SELECT stands for selenium, E for vitamin E and uh, control trial for prevention of prostate cancer because it all started in Scandinavia when men who were tested if selenium and vitamin E could improve outcome of patients with lung cancer, we actually have learned that there was no effect on lung cancer development. But then on further analysis, it was found that those men that were taking selenium and vitamin E may have had a lower chance of developing prostate cancer. But because the study was really not designed to answer this question, when this question was addressed in a well-designed prospective study, where we were hoping, after spending millions of dollars through the National Institutes of Health, and as we were hoping that we finally found a magic bullet or a magic vitamin or a compound like a selenium, uh, we actually have learned that those men who were taking selenium and vitamin E were not only more likely to develop prostate cancer, they were more likely to die of prostate cancer. And for this reason, I would caution all the patients, all the listeners, to take to heart and not to uh, overabuse or just go on the uh, popular news. Don't. Please talk to your doctor, eat well, exercise well, you can have vasectomy if you are considering because it does not seem to be causing prostate cancer, at least from what we can see so far, and uh, just lead a healthy lifestyle. I think that is probably the best advice I can give you uh, as someone who believes in the literature and the high quality of the literature. Well, as this is a disease that affects mostly older men, is it the type of thing that every man will get if he lives long enough? We do absolutely know that age directly correlates with an incidence 
as well as prevalence of prostate cancer. Incidence is defined as new cases diagnosed. And there is no question that we diagnose more prostate cancer in men who are 60 than those in 50s. And we certainly diagnose many more men at the age of 70s than at the age of 50. So that is unquestionable. Prevalence is certainly number of cases that exist among each specific age group. So by the time man is 70 alive with prostate cancer, these are the men that have cancers that they have had diagnosed in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. So age is known to be associated with higher both incidence as well as prevalence. But scientifically, one way that we have studied this was by looking at uh, those men who have died in automobile accidents without any suspicion or so of prostate cancer. And this is a very unfortunate cohort, and these are the studies that are not easy to do, but they have been done. And these are known as autopsy studies on those unfortunate men who have lost their lives uh, unexpectedly. And families of those men have agreed that uh, their prostates, uh, the prostates of diseased men will be removed and analyzed for prevalence or for presence of prostate cancer. What we have seen is that as close as 80% of the men who are 80 years old and over had prostate cancer. What we have seen is between 50 and 60% of men uh, who are in their 50s or 60s uh, will have prostate cancer. And what we have also learned that men in their 30s and 40s have a possibility and uh, existence of prostate cancer in as many as 30% of cases as well. Mm -hmm. So we are starting to learn that the age is almost a direct correlate or a direct uh, a predictor or a direct indicator of the percentage of the men who would have prostate cancer. So the answer to your question is affirmative. Yes, this man will likely be found to have prostate cancer, and it is important for screening methods that while some of the organizations do not recommend prostate screening in older men, some of the older men are so functional that completely ignoring the fact that they may have prostate cancer and not considering uh, their therapy if they have an excellent performance status and a life expectancy of 10 or more years may be erroneous. So there are many implications to this screening uh, slash incident questions and uh, we have to be very careful as we move along and have a growing population of older men in this country. Well, I definitely want to ask you about the screening. Um, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Gennady Britslovsky, professor and chair of the Department of Urology at Upstate. So there has been some debate about the value and the use of the PSA prostate screening. What do you tell your patients? As a urologist, as somebody who has seen men suffer from untimely detection uh, of prostate cancer or delayed detection or lack of detection. And as somebody who has seen me die of prostate cancer, I am still a proponent of prostate cancer screening. Also as a urologist who has seen complications from prostate cancer treatment versus either surgery or radiation, I have certainly been able to appreciate why some organizations recommend against prostate cancer screening. 
as it leads to unnecessary treatment in so many cases in the United States and our region as well. So while the question should be to screen or not to screen, I think the bigger question is to treat or not to treat. Mm. And I think we're becoming much better in identifying those men who may be spared the morbidity or complications of potentially unnecessary treatment. I think that detection of prostate cancer is still important as patients should be allowed to make an informed decision whether or not the uh, finding of cancer uh, in them would make sense to them. I always tell my patients that if they're extremely old and frail and come to me with the oxygen and their life expectancy is unfortunately very short, I do not suspect, subject them to unnecessary screening, and I actually would not recommend it. Yet, the recommendation for screening today is a grade C, which means that patients should have an informed decision and discussion with their doctor and uh, be given an option for screening. At, I, at what age do you start? The screen. recommendation of American Urologic Association is starting screen at the age of 55 and continuing it until age 70. But remember, one size doesn't fit all sure. is uh, very important. Our first part of the conversation including potentially testing men with a family history of prostate cancer, testing those men who are African-American, African-Americans who are predisposed to potentially more aggressive prostate cancers testing those with a family history of breast cancer, ovarian cancer, certain known genetic disorders. And in those men, having a, an, an opportunity to uh, intervene earlier and having an opportunity to screen earlier is a must. So while the rules of 55 screening to 70 years old are very reasonable as a general rule, sometimes when you have a... Uh, bodybuilder who is a 78 year old and comes to a uh, an appointment with his father and mother uh, and uh, it, I, I would find it very hard not to continue screening of this man especially of this man if he was screened for the past 20 years I cannot look at a very healthy high performer with an excellent longevity and these are the issues we're running into we're seeing uh, octogenarians men in their 80s and uh, when you ask them, how did you get here? And when they tell you, well, my father drove me here, how do you not uh, discuss a possibility well, of I like, uh, I like how you individualize your care and you look at each patient as an individual. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. We'll be right back with more about prostate cancer with Dr. Gennady Bretzlovsky, a urologist specializing in cancer. through what might happen if a man has a high score on the PSA test, if his screening comes back high, what are some of the things he may face to diagnose? Well, first of all, the definition of a high PSA needs to be defined. Right. 
uh, often we use ad age adjusted PSA values. We often know that uh, from some of the recent publications that a man whose PSA is greater than one are at increased chance of dying from prostate cancer. And I say that not to raise the anxiety, but to raise awareness. I, we also know that classic number of PSA of four may or may not be absolutely the best number. So some men know that PSA of four is the perfect number under which men are safe. Yet from some of the studies, we do know that as many as 26% of men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer when their PSA is less than four. So it is not one absolute value that makes us uh, uh, proceed with one type of a decision uh, versus another. I do think that once again, evaluating these patients for their age, performance status, PSA level, PSA velocity. Is this somebody whose PSA has been stable for many, many years? Or is this somebody whose PSA is slowly creeping up? Some men may develop an infection and may come to you with a history of urinary tract infection. In this case, their PSA skyrockets. So in cases like this, I would much rather administer them anti-inflammatory and antibiotics and just repeat their PSA as they will, in many cases, avoid unnecessary biopsy and intervention. So a biopsy might be, if the PSA is troubling to the physician, a biopsy may be in their future? That is absolutely right. If okay. the PSA is appropriately, is troubling, if the abnormal exam is present, even in the presence of a normal quote-unquote PSA, the biopsy is uh, a next step in the workup during the suspicious of malignancy. Whether or not this biopsy is going to be done in a standard uh, fashion using transrectal ultrasound or if this biopsy is going to be done using an MRI uh, uh, guidance that we have employed and we were actually uh, the first program in the region to employ this and we had a first installment commercially uh, of uh, Euronav platform in the United States, uh, we certainly would consider proceeding the route of either again truss or transrectal ultrasound traditional way or MRI-guided fusion biopsy, uh, newest the newest technology that we have. Well, I definitely want to talk about treatment options, but first let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Gennady Bretzlovsky, professor and chair of the Department of Urology at Upstate. And let me ask you this. Um, after a man learns that he has prostate cancer, how important is it for him to see a urologist who has expertise in cancer or, or an oncologist that will work with his urologist. Do you need um, a specialized? So I certainly am a big believer that cancer care needs to be given by cancer specialists. I personally am a urologic oncologist, which means that after completion of my medical school and uh, completion of the residency, I have spent two additional years at the National Cancer Institute just studying cancer and focusing on cancer only. Our department has fellowship trained urologic oncologists from uh, Indiana or those that have completed self-specialized training at Fox Chase and that's where we take pride. Our medical oncology team is are also fellowship trained in medical oncology and so on. So I may be presenting some of the biases 
but as a child who was brought up at the National Cancer Institute and has seen all the advantages that the specialized care that is available here provides, I certainly am a believer that the cancer, cancer care should be done in uh, uh, centers that has multidisciplinary approach, that has multidisciplinary tumor board, something that we proudly have and uh, use. And uh, this is, to me, not even a point of uh, content. It's true uh, that much of the urology and much of the basic diagnosis of prostate cancer is done uh, in the community and is done by quote-unquote general urologists. I think it's most appropriate. I think each general urologist should be able to treat uh, to should be able to diagnose and identify patients who need to be treated. But if I had to express my honest opinion, I certainly believe that the cancer care needs to be provided at institutions like Upstate, where we provide not only multidisciplinary care, we also have specialists that specialize in the specific disease processes, that have specific fellowship training, where the resources of multidisciplinary tumor board are present. So to me, the answer is unequivocally. I would advise all the patients to seek the attention uh, in, in centers like ours. So what, uh, let's talk about some of the treatments that are options here at Upstate um, for prostate cancer. Surgery? Absolutely. D- different types of surgery? Various type of surgery. Most of the time, of course, we now do robotic-assisted surgery. We also, of course, perform various types of radiotherapy on the newest equipment uh, that, you know, we are lucky enough to be able to acquire because of uh, the newest technology available and our uh, resources that we can afford. Uh, I think one of the other big strengths that we have is access to numerous clinical trials, including some of the trials with immunotherapy, uh, something that is quote-unquote, hot in the area, something where we really need uh, knowledge of our medical oncologists and expertise of our medical oncologists. And that's where it's an individualized um, medication that's given for immunotherapy? There are some uh, medic. in some cases we do use specific vaccines that is certainly available here at Top State. In some cases there are uh, more of uh, less specific but still immunotherapy uh, drugs. In some cases, these are uh, a combination of uh, immunotherapy, chemotherapy, in etc- or uh, anti-androgens that we can use. Uh, some of these decisions are indeed done in a multidisciplinary form. Some of them reflect our pathways that we have developed in our operation committee uh, and our tumor group committees where we review all the available evidence, literature, and come with something that is easy to understand for patients and uh, represent the most modern care. So it is not only ability to perform surgery or ability to radiate somebody. It's ability to synthesize data and use the appropriate treatment at the appropriate time for the appropriate patient. And draw from a knowledge base of multiple physician experts rather than who meet on a regular basis, as well as something that is uh, further strengthened by our ability to do molecular testing, as well as genetic testing. Now, after treatment, um, is a man always 
being followed for the for the rest of his life? Or if you remove the prostate in surgery, does that remove the problem, or do they have to be checked? So, in the vast majority of cases, yes, we are successful. Certain men, of course, are at the risk of what is known as biochemical recurrence or uh, PSA failure or return of a measurable blood test uh, known as a PSA. Uh, unquestionably, every man after prostate cancer treatment needs to have a lifelong follow-up. Uh, we do have literature that does document that the late recurrences are possible. Late recurrences defined as far as 10 plus years after the treatment. And while we are most successful in many, many cases, I do think it's important that we remain vigilant. And while the interval between the treatment and the follow-ups may be increasing, uh, where patients may be seen once a year or occasionally even once every two years, uh, many years after the surgery, these patients uh, must be surveilled. And while I tell my patients that out of... uh, 100 patients in a given week that I may see, while I tell them that 90 uh, will be, quote-unquote, unnecessary visits, where I will just give them high five and congratulate them and continually doing well, this is my responsibility to catch those five or 10 out of the 100 who are destined to have a more aggressive disease, who are destined to undergo additional therapy, and for this reason, we must continue with the close surveillance and treatment. I haven't heard us talk about yet um, active surveillance or watchful waiting. I don't know if those are considered treatment, but it's an option for some men, right? Unquestionably. Both are uh, treatment options. They are not the same. Active surveillance are the, uh, uh, is a type of a treatment where a man's treatment is uh, made by uh, periodic surveillance with the PSA, periodic biopsies, periodic exams, and uh, careful follow-up. In fact, as many as 33% in three to five years will come off active surveillance and will actually undergo active treatment. Watchful waiting is slightly different. Watchful waiting is usually employed for men who are diagnosed with prostate cancer but are either too frail uh, to undergo any treatment or choose not to have any treatment or even further follow-up, yet they remain Uh, active in their health decision-making, and they may choose to say uh, and request a treatment when their disease may progress or if they become symptomatic uh, from the disease. Uh, For this reason, we never mix active surveillance and watchful waiting. These are very different patients who do not undergo active treatment such as surgery or radiotherapy at a given time, but it is very difficult to be difficult concept to grasp for many that just because somebody may be 55 and have one tiny area of a prostate cancer in the prostate that it is perfectly fine not to be treated compared to a uh, 85 year old who for some reason had his cancer diagnosed and chooses to not mess his quality of life and uh, not even have any additional biopsies just because they feel, as or their doctor feel, it would never claim their life. Well, thanks for, thanks for that distinction. I appreciate it. Um, I want to ask you real quick about survival rates um, with prostate cancer. They're generally pretty good, right? That is correct. But prostate cancer is a mixed bag of fruits. 
and for this reason to lump them all at once uh, would be uh, at an, in one group would be inappropriate. Prostate cancer is something that is known to be a heterogeneous disease or a very mixed disease where not each patient is the same. It's important that you find a doctor who understands this concept and doesn't just lump every patient mm -hmm. into the same group of saying, oh, prostate cancer, good stuff, don't worry because there are some prostate cancers where we absolutely should not worry, and there are some where we need to get aggressive and get ahead of the disease. Well, thank you so much. This has been a terrific discussion. My guest has been Professor and Chair of the Department of Urology at Upstate, Dr. Gennady Bertsovsky. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. up next, how to tell when something is wrong with the thyroid gland. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The chance of being diagnosed with thyroid cancer has increased rapidly in recent years. Today, nearly three out of four cases of thyroid cancer are found in women. Just 2% of thyroid cancers occur in children and teens. With us to discuss thyroid disorders, including thyroid cancers, is Dr. Roberto Izquierdo. He's a professor and division chief of pediatric endocrine and diabetes at Upstate and also the medical director of the Thyroid Center and of the Thyroid Cancer Program. Welcome, Dr. Iskia. Thank you. Good morning. Thanks for being here. So the thyroid gland is a gland in our necks just above our collarbones. What's it responsible for? What's, uh, why do we have it? Uh, the, thy uh, the thyroid um, is a butterfly-shaped gland in the neck, and it uh, produces thyroid hormone, which is essential for a lot of um, functions of the body, uh, including uh, brain development in, in babies, uh, growth in children, and general well-being in adults. So, And it, um, uh, metabolism? It affects, meta and it does that through affecting um, the metabolism of various uh, functions, such as heart muscle, um, the regular muscles, so it's, a, track. it's an essential gland. We have to. It's add. an essential gland. You cannot live without it. Okay. Uh, unless, uh, without it, unless you, uh, as long as you're treated, you're okay. If you're treated, if you're okay. Treated, you're fine. So we'll get into that when we talk a little more about um, mm -hmm. thyroid can cancer if it has to be removed or something. Right. Um, but um, how would a person know that they're having problems with their thyroid? Uh, there's different ways, and it depends on the. Uh, on the thyroid disease that they have or condition. So if it's an underactive thyroid, uh, then they may, develop, they may develop weight gain, which is about five to 10 pounds, um, uh, sluggishness, uh, slow thinking, uh, feeling a little more sleepy. They may no notice some changes in their hair or nails, such as dry skin or brittle nails. They may have constipation. Um, and also, it may, have, may cause some depression, uh, signs of depression. Now, if you have the opposite problem, hyperthyroidism, then you may have some, uh, another set of uh, symptoms, 
which can include um, hyperactivity, weight loss, weight loss, uh, anxiety, uh, trouble sleeping, irritability. So almost uh, the opposite. Uh, almost the opposite. But common to both is uh, extreme fatigue. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, interesting. Is the thyroid something when you go for like a regular checkup? Is that something that primary care doctors check routinely? or uh, Not routinely unless, uh, if, if, unless you have some symptoms that trigger the provider to have the test done. Or... Um, uh, or there are some standards by some of the national societies that they do recommend testing every so often. Okay. But, oh, and sometimes the patients bring up the, you know, the issue of testing. Okay, interesting. Now, uh, are there thyroid disorders that affect children more uh, than adults? Or? Yeah, well, there's there's some there's a lot of disorders that are common to both. Uh, so the most common cause of an underactive thyroid Hashimoto's thyroiditis uh, is present both in children and adults, uh, and the and and also the most common cause of hyperthyroidism called Graves' disease also affects children and adults. But in some children are born without a thyroid. Uh, fortunately, uh, all states in, in the United States check for this in the newborn screening, so these children are detected uh, within 10 days of oh. birth and treat it right away to prevent um, mental retardation. Okay, all right. So these diseases, Hashimoto's and Graves, um, a person could have them, uh, and it might be detected as a child, and it might not be detected until it, they're older? Or Yeah, that's correct. It all de- depends on their severity. So like in children, if, if they have severe underactive thyroid, uh, they have very poor growth, and, th- and usually the... Uh, me- the medical provider is able to detect it because the kids don't grow well. Um, uh, okay. Yeah. So do we know what causes hypothyroidism? Well, the most common cause is the, is, has, uh, is the immune system. So the immune system attacks the thyroid, causing, it, that, causing damage and inflammation. And as a result, the hormones drop and... Uh, and then, the, and often the thyroid gland gets larger too, uh, so you develop a goiter, which means an enlarged thyroid. Huh. But um, uh, uh, and, and this, the most common condition of the underactive thyroid is called Hashimoto's thyroiditis, named after a pathologist who first who uh, discovered it. Discovered, yeah, who described it many years ago. So if you find out you have hypo or underactive yeah. thyroid, whether it's Hashimoto's or or something else, mm-hmm. how are those treated? Uh, those well, the treatment requires treatment with uh, the thyroid hormone replacement. So levothyroxine is the most common form, um, which is uh, the actual uh, thyroid hormone T4. The thyroid produces two hormones, T4 and T3, but ninety-six percent is T4, and that gets converted to T3 uh, in the liver. Um, but uh, so we generally just treat with T4. Uh, there's other preparations that are used less commonly, like Armour Thyroid, or, which is a combination of T4 and T3. But it's a pill that you take? It's a pill that you would take, yeah. Right. So what happens if you have hypothyroid and it goes undetected? Is it a dangerous thing to have? Uh, well, it, uh, again, it depends on the degree. Uh, I mean, obviously some patients with 
some individuals with mild hypothyroidism can function okay, except they feel a little more tired than the rest of us, of us, uh, um, and maybe a little more sluggish. Uh, but there are some uh, signs like uh, a, uh, that may not be detected right away, like acceleration of uh, atherosclerosis, which can lead oh. down the many years later to heart, heart disease. disease. Yeah. Huh. So. Interesting. All right. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Roberto Izquierdo, an expert in thyroid disorders. Okay. So do we know what causes hyperthyroidism? So on the other end of the spectrum is hyperthyroidism, which means an overactive thyroid where the thyroid hormones are very high. Again, um, the most common cause is autoimmunes, and Mm. that means the immune system stimulates the thyroid to produce thyroid hormone, and that's treated differently than uh, hypothyroidism. So hyperthyroidism, we either treat with surgery, medication, or radioactive iodine. Oh, okay. Um, and, and sometimes in the elderly, uh, you, uh, hyperthyroidism is triggered by, uh, uh, by thyroid nodules that are over-functioning. Um, so I want to also talk about thyroid cancer. There's been some studies that have shown a dramatic rise in um, thyroid cancer cases in middle-aged women like triple mm-hmm. the number of cases over the past 40 years. Why? Do you have any ideas for why that is? Well, um, there, there's two explanations. Uh, one is that it's being discovered uh, incidentally. So when uh, someone has a CAT scan of the neck for some other reason, like maybe they were involved in a motor vehicle accident or, mm. or, um, or, if they have, or someone has an ultrasound of the carotid artery, so we're, uh, a thyroid nodule may be detected. We're okay. just doing, we have more, Im, uh, uh, the capability to do more imaging studies, so anything, any pain, pain in the neck or something, we do an ultrasound and we're able to find it incidentally. Because thyroid cancer is so common, um, that uh, many of these cancers uh, with the imaging studies are being detected at a very early stage and they're very small. But there's also uh, studies have shown that there is a true increase also of, um, of thyroid cancer, especially of the larger type uh, of the larger cancer. So the percent with thyroid nodules that grow. Well, the percent that aren't uh, the, the true increase <coughs> then, uh, do there, are there ideas about why that is? Is it environmental? Uh, we think it is environmental, but we don't know exactly. Uh, so it's not a, a it's not a purely genetic disease, so it's, it's environment. I think the most likely cause is environmental. I mean, one of the um, external uh, factors that can lead to thyroid cancer or promote thyroid cancer is exposure to radiation therapy. So that um, that has been well known for many years. So exposure to radiation. There's also some chemicals that, such as um, PBCs, that mm. could. Uh, contribute to thyroid disease and thyroid cancer, but we don't know the true etiology. When you mentioned the radiation exposure, um, that reminds me, the dentists are covering the... Yeah, we always recommend to make sure that when you go to the dentist to cover the thyroid, so there's no excess exposure. Okay. Uh, to th- and also if you have any radiation therapy for some other reason, like lymphoma to the chest or neck, the thyroid should be protected. Okay. So once um, thyroid cancer is detected, how is it treated? Uh, well, the treatment is primarily surgical, so the thyroid is resected. So does that mean you take the entire thyroid out or just the 
the cancerous uh, part? You know, so we could either do to remove the entire thyroid or we could do a, a remove half of the thyroid. So depending on the pathological features and the size of the thyroid cancer, sometimes the cancer is small and limited to the thyroid. One lobe, since the thyroid has two parts, one part could be removed um, and, and, leave, and leave the other part intact. But if the, if the cancer looks like it's extending into the extra thyroidal tissue, then the, it's best to remove the entire thyroid. After the surgical treatment, um, some patients who are, have more aggressive disease or, uh, or have a higher stage of disease, we, treat, we give a treatment of radioactive iodine, which consists of taking a pill that contains the radioactive iodine salt because the thyroid uses iodine to, to make thyroid hormone. So by giving um, a dose of radioactive iodine, it will accumulate in the thyroid and kill the cells. Um, and that's been shown to decrease the risk of recurrence, mm. in, but only in the more aggressive type of cancer or stage three and four. Um, then after that, it's, it's usually um, uh, surveillance. So we follow the patients for a long time uh, to see to detect recurrences early and then treat them as they present. Well, that's uh, what I was going to ask. Does it um, recur? Does it have a it, high recurrence rate? You or? know, the, the, in, in long, long-term studies, the recurrence rates can be as high as 20%, but with current treatment, I think it's lower, you know, with better surgical procedures and treatment with radioactive iodine, I think the recurrence is lower in our, in, uh, and it's lower. But again, it also depends a lot on the stage and the type of thyroid cancer. So the, like stage one, which is um, less aggressive, the recurrence rate is very low, uh, maybe less than 1% or 1%, whereas the more aggressive types like stage three or four, the recurrence rate may be higher. But again, it's treatable even with time. And for the most... And, and for the most aggressive type of cancers um, that are progressing, we, now there's a set of medications that can be taken orally that do not cure, but they stabilize the cancer. Hmm. Okay. And patients can live for many, many years. So if, if you do have to have your thyroid removed or part of it removed, how does the body compensate, or does the body compensate uh, for the loss of the gland? No, well, if, if you just have half of it removed, the other part, takes over and can produce enough thyroid oh. hormone. But if you have the entire thyroid, we just replace it with taking thyroid hormone tablets, which is one pill a day. Can, um, can you feel your thyroid? If uh, you... Generally, no, unless, okay. um, un, 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 unless you have a very large thyroid. Okay. I just wondered if it was noticeable that it's been removed, like physically, if you can uh, tell. Oh, well, it. the only way you could tell it is because you have a little scar in the neck. Oh, okay. <clears throat> it's like it's called a collar, so it's like a little inch. And sometimes you cannot even see that, because the surgeons tend to make the incision along the creases. So, and with time, it, it kind just of blends hides in. It, or it blends hides, in. yeah. But that brings a good point. Uh, you could always do a neck check. So, by looking at yourself in the mirror with your neck a little extended, take a drink of water, and as you swallow, if there's a thyroid nodule or a lump in the thyroid, you'll see a little lump move oh, up and really? down. So. It, so that's a way to detect, you know, a thyroid nodule or a goiter. So that would be something you wouldn't urgently need to call your doctor about, but maybe the next visit or? No, you know, I would call. If, that, if you see that, I, I would give the doctor a call. Okay. I mean, it doesn't mean that you need to be seen the next day, 
you could probably see it in, in a few weeks or so. But so it is something to follow yes, up with. It's something to follow up with, yes. Wow. Well, good advice. Thank yeah. you so much for talking about thyroid disorders. Mm-hmm. Uh, my guest has been Dr. Roberto Izquierdo, the Division Chief of Pediatric Endocrine and Diabetes at Upstate and the Medical Director of both the Thyroid Center and the Thyroid Cancer Program. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Sometimes we wonder what good comes from all this writing. Yet we know our writing often makes us feel heard, makes us feel more hopeful, makes us even feel better. And perhaps our hope is also our desire that our words will reach others who may derive comfort or kinship from them. Listen to Miriam Greenspan, a psychotherapist and poet who has just completed a cycle of poems called The Heroin Addict's Mother. This is about addiction and its devastating impact on everyone. Her poem is called, Can a Poem Save a Life? When she was on the street and I lived like thin smoke rising from a bloody field, Would a mother's poem of survival have given me whatever sense of being accompanied might strengthen my stringy will to live through one more cratered night? The Talmud says, to save a life is to save the world. Can a poem save a life? Like the serene green pond hidden, unseen, in the thick fog of your trek through the tangled woods of addiction, you know the waters out there. And maybe that's enough for one more day. You, whose daughter, sister, mother, father, son, this very moment is peeling back his sleeve. Will the soft arrow of these words enter the cordant chamber of your loneliness? Can these words be the whisper of stones moving you to rise to one more morning? And now Steve Nickman's poem, Just now I thought or dreamed that in our bed, my wife called out my name. She needs my help now since her stroke. The odd thing is I never know if she's asleep and dreaming or awake or whether I'm awake or dreaming that she's called. Since the event, I miss the most the way we used to scan each other's backs for little blemishes, for what we could relieve each other of and all the little murmurs after sex, then sleep with hip adjoining hip, old friends. Our children slept with bears. We were each other's animals. Oh, we never doubted all our kisses, hopes and spats, words of repair, the years to come could slowly, fiercely become one way. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, we'll hear about a new procedure to fix abdominal aortic aneurysms. 
If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find the podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Listening.